This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We enjoyed our Zoomer vote panel and discussions around seniors issues so much during the federal election campaign. We decided to keep the Monday conversations going with the renamed Zoomer Squad. Everyone's agreed that the party leaders all but ignored the older demographic, with only Prime Minister Justin Trudeau offering concrete changes to both the CPP survivor's benefit and old age security. So what's next now that the election is over? Libby Snymer was joined by Zoomer Magazine senior editor Peter Mugrich, Zoomer vice president and demographic expert David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. What we heard really from throughout the election and in the fallout of the election is that seniors were angry that they were ignored this election season. There's a lot going on and it feels like they're being ignored. It feels like their issues are being ignored. It feels like they're falling through the cracks. So, for example, you know, six people every day are abused in long-term care homes and staff on resident violence has gone up 158%, okay? We also know that more seniors will line up at the food bank this year because they're having their pensions cut. Meanwhile, Sears executives walked away unscathed. Uh, We know that our hospitals are so overcrowded. We have patients in hallways, patients waiting 24 hours coming into ER. These are some of the issues that I think Zoomers are feeling and would have liked to have seen addressed in that federal election, and they weren't. It was it was silence, really. And so, as I, as I said, sort of right off the top, I think just generally speaking, what I'm hearing from people is that they were just angry, that they were frankly ignored. David, our demographics still chose to vote for a liberal government, albeit a reduced liberal government. What was the reason for that? There were a few liberal goodies there was goodies from all the parties, but if you think back to 2015, Justin Trudeau in that election made a much heavier play for the seniors' vote than mm-hmm. he did this time. And I think that— He came to CARP, too, didn't he? To yes. Carp too. Yeah. And I think the lesson for both the liberals and conservatives, being the only two parties that could have won the election, is that I think that the uh, failure to address the so, uh, seniors' vote— I more strongly cost uh, Trudeau a majority, and it cost Sheer the election. Both parties could have improved. Um, even a slight amount would have tipped the balance. They didn't go after that vote. They sat back and let events happen, and I think they both paid a price in very different ways. Marissa, what would you like to leave us with? I had two thoughts. The first is uh, this tone that David keeps referring to, it's not fabricated. It's it's real. It's the tone we hear from our members in emails and in surveys. They're fed up. They're frustrated. So we're just trying to sort of um, express that to 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 our to our elected officials. Um, the second is on the comment about 
using technology, leveraging technology, there are countries that are doing it way better. For example, Israel, you, you know, your health card is your health record. So you can go in anywhere, you can swipe it, and boom, up comes your health record. And in Canada and in Ontario, we have this patchwork system where pharmacists have health records, doctors have health records, hospitals have health records, and no one's talking to anyone. So that creates a, like, a big problem in the system because it wastes a lot of our time. Um, so that would just be maybe those are my two final thoughts there. <laughs> okay, David. Just looping it back to the election, we had an uh, uh, election where the insiders might study these results and say, boy, if we'd only gotten a few more seniors votes, if I'm a liberal, we could have had a majority. Mm. They were 15 seats short. Yeah. The conservatives might have picked up 15, 20 more seats if they'd paid a little more attention to our demographic. Yeah. Maybe there's a lesson there. But if there isn't, we will drive that lesson home in, in the future uh, very aggressively on the CARP side of things. Mm. And Peter? Um well, basically what I'm watching is is the future of Andrew Scheer, whether he um, he survives as leader. Um, I, I think he ran a terrible, <laughs> terrible election, and um, he's got a lot to answer for. He did well enough with the results, but he could have done a lot better, seniors being one of them, that it was a huge oversight. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm watching for his future. Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, Zoomer VP and Demographic Expert David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox of CARP, A New Vision of Aging, our Zoomer squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There was significant international news this past Sunday as U.S. President Donald Trump confirmed that ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed in a daring nighttime raid by U.S. Special Forces deep in northwest Syria. Trump said he died like a dog after he was cornered in a tunnel where he is said to have set off a suicide vest, killing himself and three of his children. Leaders from around the Western world, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, have praised this operation. But the question now is, is the world safer from terrorism? Donald Trump had earlier declared that ISIS was dead and done. But since his pullout from Kurdish areas, hundreds, if not thousands of ISIS prisoners have escaped and may be regrouping as we speak. Security and terrorism expert Ross McLean and Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, joined Libby to discuss. Anytime you can take out a significant charismatic terrorist leader, it's a good day. Um, a dead terrorist is always a good terrorist because he can't threaten you anymore. But we should have learned our lesson back in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was taken out by a similar special forces operation by the United States. That didn't mean the end of al-Qaeda. In fact, many analysts are now speaking of a resurgence of al-Qaeda in many parts of the world. So, you know, the fact that al-Baghdadi can't spread his message anymore, he can't inspire people to act either in the region or around the world, including here in Canada, that's a good thing. But it's not... Uh, President Trump was a little inaccurate when he declared the death of ISIS way back in April. Yeah. And if he declares it again, it, it's still inaccurate. Ross, what's your view? Baghdadi was seen as the charismatic leader, the ghost, the leader of the ISIS movement. He was the CEO and CFO and the caliph. Uh, one of the things that's happened with warfare over the last couple of decades or so, Libby, is they figured out that many times it's too much trouble and too much work to defeat a whole army. So what you do is, is you cut the head off the snake and you kill the leader. And that's what they've done in this case. 
And uh, I will say this, as far as one major difference between the taking out of Osama bin Laden and the killing here of uh, Baghdadi, and the difference is Donald Trump changed the rules of engagement for the military and special forces. Uh, President Obama had it so that they couldn't even shoot uh, hardly when they were being shot upon. They couldn't do anything without calling uh, way up the chain of command, away from the battlefield and what to do. And when Donald Trump came in, he changed it. He told the battlefield people, if you've got something you have to do to win, you go ahead and do it. Don't ask. And that's the big difference is why you're seeing a, a defeat of ISIS in this case. Uh, Phil Gursky, is there any relationship to the fact that Donald Trump announced this pullout that was almost universally panned when what, was it a week ago or a little bit longer? And uh, suddenly he has this victory. Uh, do you see a relationship between those two things or was it just a, a matter of opportunity for the military operation? Well, that's a really good question, Libby. And we're hearing reports now that, you know, Kurdish intelligence and Iraqi intelligence identified Baghdadi's location quite some time ago. Now, you know, operations do take time to, to, to load. You know, it took, you know, Bin Laden took over a year between, you know, finding him and, and eliminating him. It's hard to say, Libby. There's no question that President Trump is in need of a lot of good news right now with the impeachment hearings, the universal um, disapproval of his, his announcement to withdraw and, and to basically tell the Kurds to go pound salt, a, a great ally of the West, and he's abandoned them. So it, it's, you know, it's obviously a good news story for him and that it gets the attention away from everything else that's plaguing him. Was it planned that way? I don't know. Uh, did you see a bag the dog many years ago? I don't want to go down that road if it's the same thing, but uh, he definitely is going to benefit from this. There's no question about that. We have to wait to see here if there's going to be some sort of little flare-up of payback from this killing of uh, Baghdadi as well. And we'll we'll see what muscle flexing goes on and what goes on. I mean, Toronto, uh, we just convicted a guy who uh, you know ran over a cop and ran over some other people in Calgary. We had another incident, I, I think, actually, out in Calgary as well that was possibly terror-inspired or some such thing. We've had the two uh, military people killed here in Canada. So, I mean, it happens here. It's in Canada. Uh, so we have to we have to deal with it. Phil, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, just to pick up on Ross's um, comments, you know, historical data has shown that actually a fairly small percentage of those that come back actually do something in the country. The problem, Libby, is that one is too many. And, you know, when you work in law enforcement or security intelligence, you're only as good as your last failure. Nobody really cares how many you stop. They want to make sure that you stop them all. So even one gets through and does something. We had the attack in the, in the Canadian Tire in Scarborough two summers ago with a, a frustrated ISIS, this uh, um, Rahab Dugmash. Yep. She's bringing a golf club in the Canadian Tire. I think I was on the, your show with that, actually, yep. when that happened. What if she'd been successful and killed somebody? Right? Canadians won't be forgiving in that sense. So that's another argument against repatriation. Okay. And Ross, what would you like to leave us with? I'd like to say God bless the U.S. of A., their massive military strike force power that's able to go out and strike massively anywhere in the world. Uh, it's tough to win a war, but if there's a pinpoint that they want to take out and something they want to nail, uh, nothing is going to stop them. And I'm glad to see that this guy was taken down and avenging all of those horrific, horrible deaths that he caused and the torture that he caused over the years. So God bless the U.S.A.
security and terrorism expert Ross McLean and Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Provincial politics was at the top of the agenda for our Tuesday strategy panel. The Ontario legislature began a new session the day before with Premier Doug Ford and his cabinet ministers promising a kinder, gentler tone during question period. But is this enough to to restore the Premier's plummeting popularity. Libby put that question to our panelists, New Democrat Kim Wright, Principal of Wright Strategies, Liberal Ali Salam, Senior Vice President, Public Affairs at National Public Relations, and Conservative John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner of Fleischman Hillard High Road. That the Premier was and, and caucus and, and the recess that they had, I think, really served to their purpose, uh, not only because they wanted to not only retool and, and take the summer break and get back into the writings and, and do stuff that's, that's quite important, which is constituency work, but also it allowed uh, the Premier and his team to reflect over the last year uh, and acknowledge that there were some challenges and, and some, some maybe the pace of legislation that was coming in that might have been too harsh uh, and too quickly. And I think that what you're seeing now is a Premier who's recognized that has come back and said, you're going to see a different type of Doug Ford Premier. You're going to see a different type of government that was, that's going to govern. And I think, too, given the fact that it's the first year into a four-year mandate, it's the right time if you're ever going to reset and truly reset and retool. Now's the time to do it. And I think the first day back yesterday was a really good day. It was it was uh, telling that uh, uh, that Minister Pradmeet Sakaria was the one that led with with all the regulation and red tape uh, uh, legislation that, that was put forward to kind of give businesses a break on some of that was, was their signature um, uh, legislative uh, uh, least attack yesterday, which I thought was positive from a business perspective. Ali Salam, you're the liberal. What did you think about this uh, new Doug Ford? Yeah, I think the proof's going to be in the pudding. Um, I think we're going to have to see what what the premier does in the in the next uh, couple of weeks and months. You know, it's it's one thing to say that you're going to take a more conciliatory tone and do that for a day or two, and and you know all the benefit of the doubt to them in that they have so far you know less standing ovations in question period, you know more distribution of questions between the premier and his his cabinet ministers. You know they've started off on the right foot, and I think. A lot of that also has to do with the change in in leadership in the premier's office, and we've seen that uh, a number of people have turned over. And so it'll be interesting to see if that if that holds, or as things get back down to you know the the day to day you know fights in the in the legislature over over various issues that are of concern to Ontarians, uh, whether or not that holds. The other thing I think I know we said we didn't want to talk about federal politics, but you know you'll you'll all remember that uh, the last time there was a, a leadership race, uh, you know Patrick Brown. Went from federal politics to provincial politics. It'd be interesting to see if uh, what happens with uh, Andrew Shear's future and and how that might uh, get led into by uh, various conservative politicians here. Kim Wright. Uh, we also saw Andrea Horvath for the first time in a while, and she is her usual, I think, fairly combative self. Does does this new tone from the government mean that uh, as opposition, the NDP has to take a different tack? Look, Andrea has always been passionate about sticking up for Ontarians, especially where she sees injustices or, and in particular, discrepancies between uh, the headlines and the talking points of we're not going to lay off any teachers and then clearly teachers have been laid off uh, and that, you know, kids aren't going to be hurt and yet they are. Uh, you know, all of these things Andrea has always believed in standing up for. And I have to tell you, I, I, I had a chance to talk with her a few times over the summer break um, and I have seen more fire in her, more 
wanting to not only be leader of the opposition, but really how does she then become uh, a premier uh, than than I've ever actually seen in her. And I'm pretty excited about that. Back to the premier, however, you know, everyone shows up on the first day of school, you know, all all well put together. Everyone tries to behave in class. Everyone's all excited about, uh, you know, getting back at it. Really, as we as we go down this road, you know, we're already starting to see the ovations creep back in. Uh, we'll start to see that tone change and shift. Uh, but what I have to say is one of the things, and, you know, I, I give credit where credit is due. They've had some ministers who have moved around portfolios, who have really grown into their portfolios, looking at, you know, obviously Minister Stephen Lecce has, has been, uh, really within his, uh, within his, uh, program of education, uh, you know, trying to strike the right tone of being conciliatory. I don't agree with those talking points, and I think some of them are a little too uh, naive and simplistic. Then I think that 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 the negotiations with CUPE and the teachers will ultimately pan out to be. Um, however, what he has done, what Minister Monty McNaughton in edu- uh, in labor uh, have done, and even frankly Lisa McLeod as she's taken on her uh, you know her summer redemption tour, uh, <laughs> all, all of which all. All three of those ministers have really decided uh, and really shown an ability to step up. The rest of the government will have to showcase that. The premier will himself have to keep showing that. But I also think it's just important where we give credit where credit is due. And and those three ministers in particular have uh, have really taken this recalibrated role uh, appropriately. But the devils will be in the details and we'll see when when it comes to budget time. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel, New Democrat Kim Wright, Liberal Ali Salam, and Conservative John Capobianco. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. There were three deadly crashes involving older pedestrians during a 24-hour period early this week in the GTA. At here, Ontario and Eglinton in Mississauga, a 73-year-old man died of his injuries after he was struck by a vehicle. An 83-year-old woman was killed near St. Clair and Runnymede. And a 74-year-old man was killed at Eglinton and Don Mills. Mid-block crossings are a common theme in many of these tragic deaths. Libby spoke about the issue with Toronto City Councillors James Pasternak and Jennifer McKelvey. It's tragic to hear this, and certainly we do have to look at mid-block crossings more closely and, and why we have so many people that are that are crossing at unsignalized intersections. And I can speak specifically to Scarborough, that's where I'm from. Uh, we have some of the largest distances between signalized crossings, and it's something that we need to improve. And Councillor Pasternak? Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. The Scarborough Safety Study clearly shows that the distance between signalized crossings uh, is very long in Scarborough. It's it's also a problem in other areas of the city. Mid-block crossings are the leading cause of injury and death of pedestrians, and it's it's something that we're dealing with, but obviously not fast enough. We have to invest more money, we have to change more policies, and we need the province to come on side. Jennifer McKelvey, why, from your point of view, is this taking so long to address this? Well, certainly in Scarborough this year, we are trying to be more proactive and we have 10 mid-block crossings that are being added. But I think what we really need to look at overhauling is the way that we do the investigations to decide where a new signalized crossing is warranted. And I can give you two examples. So in my community, since I started as a councillor just last December, about 10 months ago, I put in two studies and I'm still waiting to hear back from city staff about it. So one of them is on Lawrence, where I have 1.7 kilometres between signalized intersections. So it's at Lawrence and Meadows 
Meadowvale. One side of the road, I have a stop, a TTC stop, and on the other, I have an elementary school. So clearly, there's a need, and there's six lanes of traffic that need to be crossed there. But when we put the study request in, they need to wait until it's back in the school year. They have to wait till September. They want to go out. They want to do the pedestrian counts. But what I'm really worried about is in many cases, they show that there's simply not enough pedestrians that are crossing and that the signalized intersection isn't warranted. And so I think we need to look at that warrant system more closely. The other is on military trail. I have 1.3 kilometers between signalized crossings. And again, this is in front of Highland Creek Public School. And uh, again, I'm worried that the warrant system will come back and say that there's not enough pedestrians crossing there. So we need to look at this outdated system and how we can update it. Councillor Pasternak, tell us more about this warrant system and and what are the criteria? What are, what's taken into account before somebody says, yeah, we'll have a mid, mid-block crossing here? Well, much of our decision-making uh, is under the umbrella of the Highway Traffic Act. So our city staff do, do do studies on traffic patterns and pedestrian patterns. And some of the thresholds to, to reach the warrants, in other words, the statistics we need to justify signalized crossing or crosswalk are very high and unattainable. Uh, so that's why some... Uh, oddly enough, some very busy areas to the eye are actually denied. Councillor McKelvey, like, w- what would have to happen to change some of these requirements? Well, certainly, I think Councillor Pasternak just hit it um, hit it on the head there when he said that we need changes to the Highway uh, Traffic Act. But certainly, within the city. The reports take a long time, so we have to look at how we can accelerate that on our end. Um, and city council, the Scarborough Community Council, for example, um, sometimes will overturn those decisions and will force um, city staff to put the intersection in anyway. The problem is, I don't like to do that. I was a scientist became, before I became a politician. I want to use evidence-based decision-making. I don't want to turn over a recommendation from staff, but we're being forced to do that. And an example is on Morningside Avenue at Cumber, where it was, in particular, it was children that were crossing, and parents felt it was really unsafe. So if you look at pedestrian numbers, they're the city staff said it wasn't high enough. But the other statistic they look at is killed or serious killed or seriously injured, KSI. And the problem is that doesn't account for near misses. And it doesn't account for having children that are 12, 13, 14 years old that should be crossing, be able to cross the street safely on their own that are actually being walked by their parents. So instead of just using these metrics, we also need to apply a lens of some common sense uh, and look at who is crossing and why. Councillor Pasternak, what would you like to leave us with? I would just say that we're facing we're facing major challenges in the city. We have a perfect storm with a an aging population, uh, a growing population, a net growth of seventy five thousand uh, persons per year. A transit system uh, that must be about thirty years behind. It would need a hundred billion dollars to kind of get it up to speed. These factors and the congestion and lawlessness on our roads are contributing to the injuries and deaths on our roads. But government has a role to play, and we're prepared to spend. What we have to and bring in the regulations we have to to make things safe. Jennifer McKelvey? Uh, just that safety is a team effort, but we all have a role in this. So cyclists need to be vigilant and obey the traffic rules and watch for pedestrians as well. And we need pedestrians to take the headphones off, to put the phones down, and to look carefully before they cross the street.
Toronto City Councilors Jennifer McKelvey and James Pasternak. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Cynthia in Vaughn phoned to offer her thoughts on pedestrian safety. I guess considered a young senior, but I am now currently walking using a walker as an aide. I can't get across the street fast enough with the crosswalks at the lights. I can't even see how a senior would because they would probably walk a tad slower than me with canes, with walkers, or even without because they walk slower. I think people need to actually sit there and watch when people go across because it's just not long enough to get across the street. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Rudy in Toronto, who phoned with a fond childhood memory of Halloween in Toronto. Well, I just wanted to say uh, how it was for me on my first Halloween uh, when I was about four or five years old. This would have been the early 50s (laughs) with my dad. Uh, walking along the uh, Spadina Dundas area, uh, trick-or-treating, and, and uh, I was carrying a one of those old uh, uh, brown paper shopping bags, you know, with the, with the uh, like, uh, made all the paper, even the handles were paper, and as, as it, was very, it was a very rainy night, and as we were crossing uh, the road, the, the, the shopping bag ripped, and all my goodies uh, fell into the, the gutter. And I stood there crying, uh, standing there with my, my dad. He didn't know what to do. And then, then three uh, uh, older girls, maybe teenagers, came by. And they, they saw what happened, but they, they handed their bags to me. Oh, Give me all their goodies. Oh, man. It was so well, nice of them, and I was so happy. <laughs> that does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. And follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.